Hello and welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. This week we're off on an adventure to the streets of early 19th century London. Dickensian London, with its cast of colourful characters, are familiar to us today. But how realistic are the depictions of Oliver Twist, Pip, the Artful Dodger and the rest? And what of the real people who inspired them? In this episode, we travel back in time to meet some of the extraordinary inhabitants of London streets in the early 19th century to listen to their stories and hear the songs they sang, in the company of Oscar Jensen, whose new book, Vagabonds, Life on the Streets of 19th Century London, draws back the curtain on this brutal, exhilarating, kaleidoscopic world. Oscar Jensen completed a doctorate at Christchurch, Oxford, before being awarded a Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship. He's currently teaching at the University of East Anglia as a senior research associate. I interviewed Oscar a couple of weeks ago in front of a live audience in the sunshine at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here with you all in this beautiful place at what I think of as the Glastonbury of the History Festival calendar. And that's not just because it takes place at the same time. Um, So it's very fitting that our guest today is not only a historian of music, but a songwriter as well. And I think if we're lucky, he might even sing for us. This is something I normally do in my shed uh, at home in my garden over Zoom with an audience of one, my (laughs) golden retriever, Enzo, who I don't think is that passionate about history uh, because he sleeps most of the time. So being here is really exciting. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with the Travels Through Time podcast, it follows a simple format. Every week, we ask our guests which year in history they would like to travel back to, and then they tell us about three specific moments in that year, what happened and why it was important. And then for our final question, we ask them to choose a memento from one of the scenes which they can bring back to the present with them and keep. And my colleagues, Peter Moore, Artemis Irvine and I, have been lucky enough to interview a really dizzying range of people over the past few years. Uh, Michael Palin, Kate Moss, Stephen Greenblatt, Ken Follett, Dermot McCulloch, Daisy Dunn, who I believe is here today, and Tracy Borman as well. So all of the episodes are available on our wonderful website, tttpodcast.com or you can get them from your usual podcast provider so I hope you'll check it out. This afternoon we have a real treat in store because we're going on a journey in the company of one of the fastest rising stars in the historical firmament. Oscar Jensen. Here he is. Oscar did his doctorate at Christchurch, Oxford, before being awarded a Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship. At the moment, he's teaching at the University of East Anglia as a senior research associate. 
uh, but he's about to take up a fellowship at Newcastle University. You might have seen him on BBC One's Who Do You Think You Are? or heard him on Radio 3 or 4. He's also one of the BBC New Generation Thinkers this year. And he is co-founder of the Romantic National Song Network. Oscar, welcome to Travels Through Time. Thank you, Violet. It's a pleasure to be here. I should warn you and the listeners that if you read any sources about ballad singing in the 18th and 19th century, it's all about how noisy and out of tune and thoroughly <laughs> awful they sound. And I intend to stay true to that tradition if you do get any singing. We're looking forward to that very much. Um, and today we're going to talk about some of the topics that you covered in your riveting new book, which I have here, Vagabonds, Life on the Streets of 19th Century London. And this is your first non-academic history book, but you have already written widely on cantology, it was a new word for me as well, uh, which is the history of song. Um, and that's your main area of academic expertise. But in my research on <laughs> you, I found that you have also found the time to write two novels for children set in the Viking Age. And I have to admit that when I saw your name, my first thought as the wife of a Dane was, ooh, is he Danish? Uh, so can you just tell us briefly what your connection is with that part of the world and how did you come to write about Vikings for a younger audience? Now, I know there are some Danes in the audience, so I'm not going to do a terrible... Oh, I am going to do a terrible <laughs> accent. Um, no, so it's actually a, a German family, but you have to blame 1864 for that when um, the southern part of what was previously Denmark became Germany. Not Schleswig-Holstein. It was the old Schleswig-Holstein question <laughs> again, but um, my, my opa, my, my German grandfather, very much felt himself to be, a, to be a Viking. He came over to England from Hamburg in the um, early 1950s, and I grew up listening to his tales of the Nibelungenlied and the Norse gods and, and those sort of heroes and myths, and so that was my first real love of history was through the sort of Viking sagas, the Norse myths, that kind of thing. And as an undergraduate, I studied the Viking Age, got by far my best undergraduate mark in it, to the point at which I had a total crisis of identity, thinking, do I need to do Viking stuff till I realized I'd have to speak six languages to, to <laughs> study it any further. But um, I was fascinated by the Christianization of Scandinavia, this period where, within a generation or two, this whole rich culture is sort of completely overwritten by... Um, by Christianity that, that comes over and the confrontation of this people who have no writing, who have these low superstitions as well as these high gods with someone with a book and a message and a big staff. And so I thought I'd write children's stories about that process where all of the mythology is real. So it's, it's very accurate, I hope, history, but there are things like, um, I'm not actually going to give away, there is a Christian mythological creature, if that's a thing one can say in it, but also there's sort of the, the hound of hell from the Norse tradition in there. There are, there are sort of wolves that speak, that kind of thing as well, because this is what people believe in. So if we want to think about history and how it may have really felt to people, we need to put the, the belief back in, I think. Well, they sound great, and I'm definitely going to be buying them for my um, practically illiterate children. They hate <laughs> reading, but they are half Danish, so that they should definitely read them. Um, okay, so now... Tell us about your main interest, which is, of course, cantology. How did you get into, into it? How, what was it like studying it? What does it involve, studying something like that? Well, you shouldn't feel bad about not having heard that term because it's kind of a, a joke that, that no one uses. There was one academic article that said, we shouldn't be talking about 
song as a music-like thing. We should be thinking about the history of music as a songish thing rather than musicology we have cantology because for most of human history, music mostly means song. And we all know what we mean by song, you know, you know, words and melody, fairly short things, bit rhythmic, a bit of a tune. That is essentially what music is like for most people in most places. And it's incredibly important to culture and society. And I could give you all kinds of really convincing historical reasons, I probably will later, why it's at the center of a lot of other things we study, momentous events, uh, social history, um, change, the democratic process. But to be honest, I started studying it because I was, in guitar bands in my teens and also quite like Napoleon and thought can I study songs about Napoleon yes I can <laughs> I just went on from there and it's a lot easier singing at academic conferences than it is to people who actually know anything about music and does that go on at academic conferences do you all sit there singing to each other well it does when I when I'm on stage except at music ones because I'm not singing in front of people who actually know music but um, it's very important because the study of history can be very silent uh, the, the smells, the, the sounds, the, um, the sights, you know, this is all through the page, it's through the written word, and it is really important to recover those aspects of it if we want to get a real sense. Here at Chalk Valley, we've, got, we've heard the sounds of guns going off, we've heard steam engines interrupting us over lunch, we've got historical food. These things are at the centre of, you know, rigorous academic study as well as us having a lovely time here, as you all know. Um, we need to put those back into our appreciation of, of history. Well, I think that leads us perfectly on to um, talking about your book, which uh, I absolutely loved. I found myself um, at times um, in tears and at other times roaring with laughter. It's, mm. it's really fascinating and such an unusual way. Uh, so it tells such unusual stories. Thank you. And that is what you say. I loved in the introduction, um, you say you want to tell th these people's stories because in their own time, their voices were rarely heard. And um, it makes it even more difficult for us to hear their voices now. But if we cock our ear the right way, even these compromised voices will ring true. So can you just describe to us um, about the book and the structure and how you came to decide to write it. Yeah, I can. And you talk about voices being rarely heard. It reminds me of that Sherlock Holmes quote, you see but you do not observe. People on the streets in London were heard all the time, but they were not listened to. This is the different thing. By the people writing the history. They were listened to by, um, by the working classes, by a lot of the middling sort. That this was how things were sold in the street, how songs were passed on in the street. People were listening, but the historians of the 19th century, the 18th century, have not given them their due, shall we say. And I wanted to tell a book of life on the streets from those people's own perspectives. We have a lot of history that it starts in the 19th century with people like Henry Mayhew, which is sort of looking down at life at street level from above, trying to work out what on earth is going on there. They look at the streets, which to the modern Victorian gentleman is a place to move from A to B, a place to facilitate the, um, the transport of goods that will lead to capital and the growth of the modern financial world. These places are conduits, and they can't understand these people who are just standing around still as if the street is somewhere to be rather than to pass through. But what you have there is this whole thriving economy of life, of entertainment. It's where people get their food. It's where people get their, um, the spare things they need to make their life work. It's where the recycling happens. And it's where entertainment happens as well, whether that's music and singing, um, dance, any number of things. Uh, so I wanted to write a book that really appreciated how these people saw these, these streets and their place within them. 
And actually, we've got access to a whole load of these people's voices. We just have to stitch them together. You don't have great big archives because these people are not writing things down in manuscript. And if they are, they're certainly not having it left to posterity. Many of these people are illiterate. But you get those few people who rise out of the street and write a memoir, whether that's because they feel politically it needs to be heard, whether they've had a religious conversion and feel their message is, is important. Those people are normally men. Uh, and then you get all of the people who are trapped in the machinery of the state, and we have their first-hand voices normally through court records. So aside from things like journalism, those are the main two sources that actually get you first-hand accounts in their own words. And with that, I thought I could write biography, but not the biography of one person, but of many people. So the structure of the book begins in infancy. It goes to boyhood, to the experience of women in their teens, uh, to immigrants to London, uh, to people in their professional prime, to people in trouble on the run, and then to people in old age finally ending in death. It's a birth-to-death biography, but of many people just trying to dignify that, them with that care and attention to how they felt, how they saw themselves, the little tiny events that happened to them that were as important as the great events. I think it's interesting what you say there about the streets being, for some people, and I think in the modern world, they are largely places that we move through, that we transit through them into uh, buildings. And that's something which has really struck me recently, actually in my own research as well, which is earlier, how much of life happened outside. And selling, for example, happened in markets rather than shops. I mean, there were shops, but they often had the wares outside. And as you say, there were people who would go around selling baskets of flowers or whatever it was, or fruit, or, and would cry their wares. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Because there was a, a thing published, wasn't there, I think a bit earlier, the cries of London, and then there was the cries of Paris that was even earlier still. Yeah, so the cries of Paris <coughs> start in the mid-16th century, and then the cries of London and other cities take off soon after that. And these, are, these come in multiple forms. They're often images, engravings, etchings. And you have this pretty little picturesque image of someone and then either the words of their cry or their occupation. So it's sort of, this is the oyster girl, or the cry, by a broom, or something like that. You have a stereotypical image of a sort of person, a sort of occupation. And this is a tradition that carries on for centuries, right up until the late 19th century, when people feel these cries are disappearing, and it becomes a more antiquarian, we need to record this before it disappears forever, sort of thing. In our lifetime, I'm sure many people here can remember people crying, whereas even in the in the mid-19th century, mid-20th century uh, streets and in many parts of the world this still goes on. But these books, these publications of cries are of course written and produced for a wealthier market, often for children, and they're very much about sort of taming, exoticizing, rendering picturesque these people. These people who are very close to you and giving you a framework in which you can maybe condescendingly look and say, isn't that nice, rather than feel, oh my gosh, you're shouting very loudly. So the streets would have been a lot noisier, a lot more full of song and voices than they are today. I think full is a lovely word, actually, because at actual decibel levels probably are higher now with, with traffic, and this is very much happening in the 19th century with the rise of the hansom cab and, and, and horse traffic increasing vastly, but full of all these different cries and sounds, and to the extent that people would pitch their voices at different pitches, very high, uh, rather lower, to cut through to the listening air, in different ways, um, and often use musical notes precisely so that it could travel to people far away so you could hear them. If you, if you pitch on a note, your voice carries further than otherwise. Here at Chalk Valley, we are amplified. We don't need to do this. No, thank goodness. Um, and so I think for most of us, the, the, the 
thing that we'll, we would associate with these cries or we would have heard was, is in the musical Oliver. Yes. Of course, written by Charles Dickens, the, the book uh, Oliver Twist. And um, I wanted to ask you about the relationship between people like Dickens, who were very important in the, the 19th century in writing about the pe these people in poverty who had no voices. And then the, this rather complex and often slightly uncomfortable relationship between philanthropy and charity in this period and then the actual needs of the people who they were supposedly caring for. Yeah, I mean, Dickens's heart is very much in the right place. He knows what it's like to be poor. He has that period in his boyhood where he has to work in a blacking factory. His father's gone to Dessa's prison. And he's very much feeling he needs to evangelize for these people in the cause of reform. He, his heart is in the right place, but he's still sort of writing downwards about people in a level beneath him on the whole. Philanthropy and charity as we know it today uh, is a knottier issue in the 19th century. Their notions are a bit different. There's a lot about salvation to the extent that people in the street are exoticized, seen almost as the colony within. Um, London becomes the sort of heart of the empire and in the same way, in the same way missionaries are going out to, to Africa, to, to the New World, they're also venturing, as we know, to the centre of London and doing exactly the same thing, treating people in the same way. And they will save people whether they want to be or not. Uh, and in the book, especially, I talk about children, uh, often young girls, who are being rescued in spite of themselves, who feel they have no need of rescuing, but you're going to be put in a in a home for destitute women, this is, this has to, or, or for fallen women, this happens to Mary Ann Don Donovan, an 18-year-old Irish seller of combs in the street, who is told to go into this place for her, for her correction. But um, in her opinion, she hasn't fallen anywhere. She's just selling some combs. She's, her morals aren't in question, so she won't go into this, into this home. It's a, it's a real struggle between people who feel they know best for people. And time and again... I encounter the first-hand voices of people who will do anything rather than end up in a workhouse or an institution. These places may not have been quite as bad as they're painted, that caricature um, of where Oliver ends up in that workhouse. Sometimes it's true, sometimes they're actually slightly more forward-thinking, better institutions. But that reality is less important than the perception of ordinary people that they are not going to end up there. I thought that was really interesting when you talked about the young boys in the book and how they had this sort of awful choice between two evils so there was the choice of being free and living on the streets but having nothing and you know being so cold at night that the frost made their they would wake up in the morning and their clothes would be sort of crunchy because of the frost and then the other choice of going into the workhouse but then losing their freedom and and being subjected to quite possibly a, quite a cruel hard regime and that, I, that just seemed so desperate to have those as your two options and there were tales of boys who kind of swung between the two so they'd occasionally yes. they'd just get so hungry they'd go into the workhouse and then they'd get bored and have enough of it and then they'd escape and then live on the streets for a bit I, I just thought that was so extremely moving thank you and and one of them um we mentioned oliver twist this boy robert blinko who is an orphan and is raised at a very young age in st pancras workhouse he looks out of the window he sees beggar boys in the street selling matches he envies them the time comes in what will directly be ripped off in oliver twist when the the master chimney sweeps come to find boys to recruit to take up and all the other boys are shrinking away because they know what it's like they're not going to go up a chimney and robert bingo is so excited because he sees it as a chance for freedom that he's doing all these stretching exercises and saying me sir me sir pick me to be your chimney sweep which is a horrific thought. He doesn't get chosen, uh, and actually he ends up in a factory and has a far worse fate. Yeah. But it's that real desire to, even if there is some comfort there, to reject it and 
feel a sense of liberty because with that also comes a sense of pride and self-worth. Absolutely, and there was a huge amount of shame around um, being being sent to the workhouse, wasn't there? Yeah, shame is a is a big thing in the book. Um, boys in particular seem to feel shame, and I I mean remember back to your childhood. I- embarrassment, shame is an emotion that comes through very strongly in our in our memories. And John James Beezer, who features quite prominently in my book. Um, is at the age of seven, he finds himself going out to sell hot cross buns in the street. And I've, I've told this story a few times, but he's so ashamed in his local streets around his house being seen selling hot cross buns that he can only whisper, he's a hot cross buns, hot cross, one a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. He does this for five hours and he sells two buns because no one can hear him. And they're not hot anymore. No, no, they're compl- he says they're cold as the corpse of a Laplander. <laughs> Um, I love as well in your book how you weave, so he's a good example, you weave his story in and out of the book so that we meet him when he's a child and then he appears again a bit later. And um, just quickly tell us um, before we move on to... Um, yeah, we've get promised people a year, haven't we? Yeah, I know, we need to get in our time machine. But just quickly tell, the, the, there's an unusual story of a boy called Edmund Keane. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him, because that had a very happy, it had a happy ending. So that was, I clung to that one. Well, some of you may have heard of, of Edmund Keane because he was one of the greatest actors of the, of the 19th century stage. Uh, but yet he starts out, he's, he's born in total poverty on Grayson Lane. His mother is a, is a hawker. She sometimes goes off as a sort of traveling player, but mostly she, she sells things door to door. And she has him in, in an old room off Grayson Lane. Um, he finds himself on the streets a couple of times as a very small child. He trails around after his mother selling things. Um, but then she goes off into the country with this traveling player, leaves him with her with Charlotte Titswell, who will be his guardian. And because Edmund Keane is so keen on his liberty, he's always running away, they lock him up. They put a collar around his neck as if he's a, a dog or a stray cat saying, return this boy to, to this, this address. They, they chain him to, the, to their guardians when they go to sleep. Uh, at one point, he, he gets away. He's moonlighting in a pub. He's, he's covered in tars and feathers and, and doing tumbling tricks. And Charlotte Tidswell finds him and ties a rope around him and drags him back. Uh, <laughs> Ironically, for him being, in the end, um, he goes to Bartholomew Fair, he is a successful acrobat, he then gets onto the stage. He does this because he has connections, if I'm honest. His, his sort of godparents, the people looking out for him, one of them is, is Henry Angelo, sort of fencing master to the stars. Another one is Charles Inkledon, who is the foremost tenor of his day. So he's a lot like a lot of these other street boys, except he knows people who know the Prince Regent, you know? So he, that's how he gets off the street. But he's also talented. He's incredibly talented. He is the most... He has his chutzpah is incredible. He will sell anything to anyone. He will turn anything into a joke, a trick. He will climb up a greasy pole and and turn somersaults on the top of it. And he is the most engaging figure. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Well, I think the time has come that we need to um, get in our time machine. So, Oscar, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, which is, of course, if you could travel back in time, which year in history would you choose? I almost feel I like to take potluck and this book ranges over sort of 80 90 <laughs> years so it's quite hard to choose but uh, you know i'm quite environmentally conscious about travel and i i see that two of your recent guests bernard cornwell and nicholas guyatt um have chosen 1815 so i thought if i could hitch lift with those two to 1815 i'd have some excellent traveling companions and we could maybe save a bit of fuel as well yeah no no it, they're ele- it's electric and it's all solar panels don't worry it's all very environmental well we're, we're on our way now so 1815 <laughs> it is um, so 1815, obviously a huge year in history. Um, Napoleon is is back, and then he's not. So tell us, set the scene. 
what, what, what's happening? Oh, 1815. Uh, and we're, we're coming to um, England for, for this year because there's a lot going on around the world. And um, we sort of have a, you know, there's going to be a year without a summer. Uh, it, it's a tumultuous time in, in many places. The, the, the after effects of um, Britain deciding to abolish the slave trade are starting to take effect in some places. The high seas are an interesting place. But it's this year where at the start of it, we're a few months into the general peace. They're just signing a treaty with America that's going to end the War of 1812 as well, which is definitely outstayed its welcome by the start of 1815. And so after a generation in Europe and increasingly North America that has known nothing but war, and of course a war that has spilled out to every corner of the globe, people at the start of this year think this is it. This is peace in our time. You know, it's almost everyone's a, a chamberlain in this, in this level. Um, but then it all goes a bit wrong in the spring as Napoleon returns with the violets. He escapes from Elba, um, makes his way back to Paris, is rapturously received, and suddenly the world has to flip in a second. Uh, not unlike the mobilization we had for, for COVID, suddenly everything is back on a war footing. And by the time we come to the early summer, which is where we're going to drop in, uh, it's almost as if things have never changed, except suddenly um, everyone's on the same side against this one country of France, and everything's headed in one direction. But uh, back home, things are, things are stirring. Um, the seed of revolt that has been brutally suppressed during the war years, the Luddites have been put down. It's starting to fan again um, with the reopening of trade across Europe. Uh, this has caused terrible economic um, depression in, in England, which no longer has its sort of um, its protectionism that protects its prices. Uh, harvests are very bad. So we're going to see already before... Waterloo, we're going to see the things that end up in Peterloo a few years later. So, a world in absolute turmoil. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> um, so, can you take us to our first scene? Let's go straight there. Yes, yeah, so we're going to go... Um, we're in a lovely hot summer at the moment as we're recording this, and we're going to go to, to summer too. We're going to be at 8 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday the 8th of August, 1815. And of all the places to choose in the world, we're going to Kennington in South London. And this scene starts off really innocuously. There is someone on the street singing ballads. A door opens. Mary Bailey is 22 years old. She's a domestic servant, like most young women of her age. Uh, she's just cleared away the breakfast thing. She's coming out to sweep, sweep the step. She hears someone singing this ballad. She buys it as she goes back inside. That's sort of the scene, and that's all there is to it. Except a few hours later, Mary Bailey is discovered upstairs her throat has been cut open with a large carving knife. There is no question but that she has committed suicide. And I want to think about why this might have happened. Before we think about that, can you just tell us about selling songs on the street and being paid to sing in the street? Because we haven't really touched on that. And that's such an important part of this whole story. I absolutely can. And this is going to be the theme that takes us right through our, through our three scenes of 1815. Uh, think about this, this is obviously a time before recorded music. So selling songs in the street is less about busking, though potentially the third scene we might see a busker, and it's more about disseminating songs. If you want to hear a song, you want to hear music in your own home, however lowly you are, you're going to have to make it yourself. You can't pay someone to just be there and sing. And in middling and gentry households, this is part of the reason why young women's accomplishments include must play the pianoforte very well, must be a beautiful singer. It's not because those things are great ends in themselves. It's so that the husbands who marry them and the fathers of these women have got a sort of living jukebox in the corner of the room to entertain them. That's the primary reason why these people are taught <laughs> to sing. But at a working class level where you have no pianos, you have to sing for yourself. 
So singing, singing and selling songs in the street, your point is not so much just to entertain people at the time, it's to sell a song. So you're armed with maybe 24, 30, 60 copies of a song, normally a slip, so about an A4 piece of paper in size, but cut down the middle, might have two songs on it. You've got a load of these, they have the lyrics to your song. And if you're a ballad singer, you will choose to stand maybe at the corner of two streets, or maybe in the portico of a public building with a sort of big wooden door at your back as a resonating chamber, and you will stand there for hours maybe singing the same song again and again with breaks in between where you sell them. So you'll sing maybe the first couple of verses to attract people's interest. If they want more, you'll carry on all the way through the song. These songs generally repeat their strophic, that is, same tune after same tune, verse after verse. And then in the pause, people should come and buy them, having learned that really simple tune, if it's a new one, to take home and perform themselves and perform again. People sometimes say that the broadside ballad is the news sheet of this period. That's not so true. People have access to news through other means. They're not so much ways of getting information as thinking things through. So if they are topical, they'll comment on a thing, they'll give you analysis, but also there will be songs that you have just for the pleasure of the melody, uh, songs of the story they tell, they'll be about any subject under the sun. But the real thing to really understand is that you're singing these songs to sell the printed version of the song for people to sing themselves. But lots of them do tell news. Well, this one in particular is one of those ones that comments because uh, the song Mary Bailey hears, um, it's not so much telling news as giving an interpretation of, event, of an event that happened a couple of weeks earlier, which is the execution of Eliza Fenning. Eliza Fenning is also a 22-year-old domestic servant, just like Mary Bailey, and she is accused of attempted murder of her employers and their son-in-law. They've all eaten some yeast dumplings Eliza Fenning included, uh, which have later been found to have some arsenic in, and they've all become very, very ill. They all recover, but Eliza is charged with murder, with attempting to murder them all by poisoning the dumplings. There's a lot wrong with this case, and an awful lot of people think she is completely innocent. This is very important, but she is tried, she is found guilty, and she is hanged at Newgate. This is seen as a great injustice, and it becomes a cause celebre of the radical movement. It's an obvious uh, powder keg for class conflict because here she is a servant uh, accused of murdering her employers and it's at a very volatile time. So 20,000 people attend her funeral in Bloomsbury. It's big news, so much so that two or three weeks later, the ballad singer in the street is singing a song that, as far as I can tell, is one called Lines on the Death of Eliza Fenning. Starts a little bit like this. My aching heart with pity bled when poor Eliza clothed in white At Newgate dropped her, her lovely head And closed her eyes in endless night And closed her eyes in endless night And it goes on for four or five verses And it's contesting the justice of the execution, it's making Eliza out to be a heroine. The final two lines of the song are, she vowed that innocent she died, and angels bore her soul to heaven. And so this is the song I think Mary Bailey hears the ballad singer, seller singing, because a witness says, a washerwoman witness says, he was singing songs about Eliza Fenning, and Mary Bailey's last recorded words are, ah, poor Eliza, with a sigh, buys the song, goes inside. So I see this as her experiencing a song that very much glamorizes the death of a young servant. Crucial detail, the night before, the 7th of August, Mary Bailey's employer has given her notice. So here we have a young woman with no future, nothing to do, she's just lost her job. And she hears this song 
about someone in her exact same position whom she feels has died a martyr, essentially. If she was already on the edge, if she was worried about what she was going to do, if she has no family, no future, I think this is the moment that tips her over the edge. That's so tragic. And do you think that that kind of story is quite representative or do you think it was very unusual? I think it's unusual in having a song that we can so directly see cause and effect in a way. There are a few instances. Uh, the fencing master I mentioned earlier, Henry Angelo, when he's a young boy, he's going to be a midshipman and join the Navy. But his mother goes around singing a theatrical song called For My True Love Is Gone To See. And it makes them both cry so much that she says, no, 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 you can't do it. I can't lose my boy. You're not allowed to go into the Navy. So that's a case of a song literally stopping this boy's career in the Navy. So we have these instances. But there's a great belief amongst the authorities. Uh, they often quote this Enlightenment thinker called Andrew Fletcher of Saltoon in the early 18th century, that songs have a magic power. This is a quote, a magic power over the people. That um, the words in ballads, because they're put to music, because they're sold in their hundreds of thousands, because they appeal at that lowest level, have this great affective power. And you can all think of songs that mean a, an awful lot to you. We were talking before this about Running Up That Hill by, by Kate Bush. If people are watching Stranger Things, I think it's no spoiler to say that is a song that saves someone from a terrible death because of its emotional power. This is how people think about songs in the 18th and 19th century. Well, and I think still, music still has this magical power. It absolutely does, but at <coughs> a time when it's, it's so ubiquitous, uh, because people pay a lot more attention to it maybe then than now, because it's not so much a, a background thing or something you experience at mm. some times of your life. It's so much more participatory. You often sing that song so much more often yourself, and it's your primary mode of, of music and entertainment. It's even stronger in this period. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, well, I think we should move on now to your next scene and your next song. Um, so where are we going next? We're heading out of London and down to the coast. Yes, let's take a boat down to the coast. I think it's very hot. We need to get out of the, the big city. So we're going down to Tor Bay off the south coast. Um, to describe what's happening here, I don't think I can do better than uh, quote a couple of the letters of uh, Viscount Admiral Keith, who is commander-in-chief of the fleet at the time. Um, he's writing back to his wife and friends. So on the 20th of July, here he is at sea, Remember, uh, the Battle of Waterloo is a month ago. He writes, We are still at a loss about Napoleon. He was said to be at Isle d'Aix on the 11th. I am doing my best to nab nap. Four days later, the 24th of July, he has other news. Bonnie is in Torbay, with five generals and 60 persons in all, but I am obliged to prohibit all intercourse with the ship, as all Plymouth would have been off to gape at him. Next day, things have escalated. Half Cornwall and Devonshire are arrived. The Borringdons are coming with an immense party. He has taken stables for 80 horses. Um, so we are going to find ourselves in a very small boat, along with maybe 10, 20,000 other people in very small boats, bobbing up and down in a harbour, being propelled off a ship by irate sailors, craning our necks and trying to get a glimpse of one average-sized man in a big hat. I thought he was supposed to be very small. No, he's five foot six, completely oh. average size height for the day. You've got to blame James Gilray's caricatures <laughs> for that perception. Um, that must have been such an extraordinary moment because that coast had lived in terror of old Boney, as I believe he was sometimes known, for years. Well, and then suddenly he's, he's there, de um, defeated, but... Right there. Some, somewhat controversially, I'm going to say that the coast is the place that's least terrified of Napoleon because the invasion threat in the late 1790s and again in 1803 uh, is a fiction, a fabrication. There's no way he's getting that fleet, that his men across the channel. He's got 100,000 men stationed there hoping. But 
to embark them all, cross the channel and disembark while, while the Royal Navy still exists, is a preposterous thing to talk about. In somewhere like Birmingham, people are terrified this is going to happen. <laughs> In the naval towns, they know full well this is not happening. But it is a place where people um, have been looking, they've been seeing, they've been very closely involved in this war effort all the way through. But you say it's just the South Coast. Here we go, the 3rd of August. Keith again. I am worried to death with idle folk coming even from Glasgow to see him. There is no <laughs> nation so foolish as we are. Everyone wants to be at Torbay. Um, and this, this causes great trouble for, for Admiral Keith because there's a protocol conundrum. Um, Napoleon wants to be addressed as, as your majesty, your imperial highness. He's under strict instructions to only call him General Bonaparte. But Napoleon won't listen if he's addressed as General Bonaparte. Um, <laughs> And Keith has got his own sort of hero worship. He says, oh, he's like as possible as the picture. He talks about his, his lovely almond eyes and his full calves. He's got a bit of a thing going on, <laughs> as everyone does who meets Napoleon. But Napoleon is begging him, can I go ashore? He's under strict instructions, do not let this man ashore. The prince regent will love him. He'll talk him into anything. But also the people will more than likely rally around to support him. Um, and there are all these devious attempts to get Napoleon ashore. And I want to tell you about one that happens on the 4th of August. There is um, a plot drummed up uh, to use the Habeas Corpus Act to summon Napoleon as a witness. There's a, there's a concocted libel case between two people in which they're going to call Napoleon as a witness. And so a constable called Mackinrot tries to serve Admiral Keith with papers that will be a summons for Napoleon to appear in London. And um, if this man touches Keith... He's legally obliged to do what he says. And so we have this situation. Keith writes to his wife, What a mercy I left the house before the constable came to it. He followed me to HMS Tonnant. I left that ship and went to the Eurotus. He followed. I went out at the opposite side and rode to sea. <laughs> After a time, I landed at Corsand, but my friend the constable followed. I therefore went out to the point and got on board the Prometheus and remained till dark when I had seen the man land at Corsand. I should have been had up before the justice and borne under my wing till November next. So we have this complete farce where... The admiral in charge of all of the ships around is literally getting on a ship on one side and jumping off the other side to escape this man chasing him. And he's being rowed out in a rowboat to sea as he's being chased around the harbour by someone trying to serve him with papers. I think it's amazing. Uh, but then just three days later, at the same time as Mary Bailey's um, suicide, Napoleon is finally transferred to HMS Northumberland, which is going to take him to St Helena and Keith can rest easy. So have they already made the plan that they're going to send him to St Helena? Or is uh, that being concocted? It's been debated for quite a long time. It's been earmarked as a place to send him for a while. Um, it's a lot more remote than Elba and crucially, mm. it's, it's um, the Royal Navy's main uh, watering station between uh, West Africa and, and the Cape. So um, the only people going there are, are British ships. It's somewhere to keep him a lot safer than Elba. So it's been in the works for a while, but there are very hot debates going on at the time about okay. it. Okay. And can you um, now treat us to the song that goes with this scene, please? Yeah, I mean, there are many songs that may come, come off this scene. Um, <coughs> and this is, this is the thing I want to come on, the importance of songs of Napoleon. But I'm going to give you the first two verses of one called Napoleon Bonaparte's Exile to St. Helena that actually starts slightly earlier with the point at which he is leaving France and coming to Torbay. In Rochford Dock, the fleet lay moored. The streamers wavered in the wind When Napoleon Bonaparte came on board Saying, where shall I some refuge find? Tell me, jovial sailors, tell me true If to old England, to old England I shall sail with you Then Captain Maitland thus did say 
Yes, to old England you shall go with me. Soon as Napoleon these words did hear, he bowed, he sighed, and hung his head, saying, my wife, my kingdom, and my glory's lost, and I'm an exile, I'm an exile on the ocean tossed. Now, Street ballads are performed with no accompaniment. A problem with that is you might start by pitching it a bit too low for your voice, mightn't you? Uh, that, was, that was a bit low. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but It was lovely. Thank you. Maybe one or two of you might just recognise that tune because that song is Black Eyed Susan, which is maybe just about the most famous English song of the 18th century that's not God Save the King or Rule Britannia. Um, and it's the story of the separation of William and Susan. He's being taken off to see Susan is left behind. And it uses a lot of the same lines and verses, but puts Napoleon in instead. Mm. And it's his separation from his wife. And this is where I want to think about Napoleon and song, because there are an awful lot of these songs about Napoleon's exile. Uh, Isle of St. Helena is a, is a classic. There are um, Born in Bunch of Roses. Some of you may know the grand conversation on, on Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon's Farewell to Paris, many, many of these songs. And what they do is they dwell on Napoleon's separation from his young son and his wife, Maria Theresa of Austria. And whereas today we think about Napoleon, we think about his love affair with Josephine. Mm. That's the Hollywood story. At the time, ordinary people thought about him and his second wife. And the reason for this is because they identify with him incredibly closely. So I want to think about songs about Napoleon and his separation as a way for people to deal with their own trauma of these wartime years. Uh, as never before in Western Europe, in North America as well, people are being separated, families are being separated. Now it's nothing like on the same scale as families are being forcibly separated by the state in, in West Africa and being taken across the Atlantic, mm. but it's very similar. Um, a significant minority of the Navy sailors are press ganged. An awful lot of the soldiers in Britain are given a, a choice between uh, the army and the jail. So it's not necessarily a choice for uh, many, many thousands of people. And a lot of those men who go away never come back. And it's a moot point as to whether their widows um, are going to get their, a pension. If it's just a sweetheart, you've got nothing, and then you're, you're bereft. A lot of people left with uh, young children who will never know their father. Mm. And of course, at the same time, transportation is still uh, in, its, in its heyday. People are being shipped off to Botany Bay in Australia for seven years or for life. So for many, many thousands of people in England and Britain in this period, they have direct first-hand experience of their closest loved one being sent across the sea. And this is the tragedy of their lives. But it's also now the tragedy of the most famous man who's ever lived's life. And by having these songs about Napoleon, it's a way of dignifying, romanticizing their own experience, giving it a little bit of meaning. Uh, for the benefit of the tape and the audience, I am now showing Violet um, a pair of printed ballads. Uh, these are printed together, so it would be on a single sheet, perhaps cut up, perhaps together. On the right, we have the song Napoleon Bonaparte's Exile to St. Helena. On the left, we have a song called The Last Adieu. Uh, which is also about the separation of, of Mary from her sailor love. It's an ordinary couple separation. And these are together not by coincidence, but because Napoleon kind of is every man in this situation. Hello, it's Peter here. Many landscapes across the UK bear traces of historical migrations. Although Somerset is the land of the summer people, the winter months are also a very special time to explore the fusion of natural and human history that can be found here. Why not join a tour run by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? Their winter wildlife tour to the Somerset levels takes in key historical sites, such as Glastonbury Abbey and Alfred's hiding place at the Isle of Athelney. 
alongside some fantastic nature reserves. Keep an eye out for bitterns, barn owls and marsh harriers at one of the country's most exciting and beautiful wildlife projects, the mystically named Avalon Marshes, and explore one of the RSPB's oldest and largest nature reserves at West Sedgemoor. To find out more about ACE and the variety of tours they offer in the UK and further afield, visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or request a brochure by phoning 01223 841 That's so interesting and surprising. Um, we must rush forward, though, yes. to our next scene, um, because we're running out of time. Um, so we're going back to London um, as quickly as we can, to Tower Hill, um, where we're going to meet one of the most extraordinary street performers of the whole century. Yes, Over to you, Oscar. Thank you. And, and, and this one you can find in, in my book, Vagabonds, in, in Chapter 5. Uh, this is a man called Joseph Johnson, who has been someone I've been thinking about for close on a decade now. He is an enigma to me, but also the most fascinating person I've ever encountered in my work. And if we're going back in time to 1815, there's nothing I want to do more than have a conversation with him, buy him a drink, and find out what is really going on in his life. So Joseph Johnson is known to us because an antiquarian artist, John Thomas Smith, takes his portrait, publishes it on the 31st of December, 1815, but probably is taking it over the summer, uh, the time that we're coming back to London. And it's the most extraordinary image because Joseph Johnson is black, he's an ex-sailor, he is disabled in both legs, so he uses asymmetric crutches, which are incredibly unhealthy and will kill him before long, but they're the best he can do at the time. Um, he carries in one hand his ordinary hat, as a beggar for people to throw coins into. But the thing that people have always been most fascinated by with this man is what's on his head, his second hat, which is a beautifully constructed model of a brig, a two-masted sailing vessel that Joseph Johnson says is called the Nelson. And um, you may have come across Joseph Johnson because uh, Larrington Walker plays him in two episodes of the BBC series Taboo. Series one of Taboo from a few mm. years ago. Uh, he appears at the start of episode one, actually, of that. So you can, if it's ever on iPlayer, look it up. And in Susanna Clarke's amazing historical magical novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, he has a sort of cameo appearance in that as well. So he's a figure people have been fascinated with for a very long time. And at the time, he's written up as a novelty. Um, he, he dances, despite being disabled, he dances with this, with this hat, so it gives it the appearance of sea motion. And he uses the heads of the surrounding crowd, almost as the waves on which his, his boat is carried. Um, and he does this as he sings. And he sings, he's known to sing three songs in particular, The Wooden Walls of Old England, um, the, the Hardy Tar, or The British Seaman's Praise, and uh, The Storm. And the Storm is his most famous song, and it's written in the 1770s. It goes a bit like this. See shrewd Boreas, blustering railer, list ye lands, men all to me. Messmates hear a brother sailor sing the dangers of the sea. From bounding billows first in motion, where the distant whirlwinds rise, to the tempest troubled ocean. Where the seas contend with skies. I'd like to thank the plane for providing the street, <laughs> yeah, um, the street difficulty <laughs> of getting your song across. And that goes on for about another seven minutes, <coughs> and it is a full narrative of a storm at sea. And I think for Joseph Johnson, this is the song of his life. 
it's more than likely that the reason he is disabled, or as he puts it in his own words, um, he is damaged in his cockpit, which is a typically sort of <laughs> self-effacing way of making light of his injury in a way that will put his audience at ease. Uh, that m almost certainly happened uh, during a storm at sea. So day after day, he's sort of singing the most traumatic episode of his life as a way of dealing with it. But he's also singing very patriotic sea songs. Mm. So we don't know where Johnson is born. Uh, he probably has a West Indian origin. We don't know if he has a, a background in slavery or not. He's been a sailor, uh, as far as we can tell, for many years at this point. Um, but he's very much a Briton, and he's making East London his home. Uh, and so by singing these very patriotic songs, uh, the British Seaman's Praise specifically is about agitating for protect the hardy tar. He saved you in the war. Now make sure you look after him. Now it's peacetime. Uh, the Wooden Walls of Old England is also very much sort of, you know, we're very important. Uh, yeah. uh, by doing this, he's very much saying, look, my skin may be different to most of you at a period where race is starting to become a signifier for um, nationality. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been before. But he's saying, listen to my songs. I've got a boat called Nelson on my head. I am as British as you are, and I am very important to um, the story of this country. And so he's making himself a home with this. At the same time, this practice of having enormous models on your head, especially of boats, um, goes back to West Africa and then especially Jamaica. It's a practice called John Canoe. This goes on to this day in great festivals in the Caribbean. Uh, and John Canoe uh, in this period is is a slave festival of subversion and resistance. And it's kind of a sort of Saturnalian subversive thing where people uh, mock their masters, where they have just a, a few days of sort of riot and revelry that sort of gets them through their lives. And he's very clearly invoking this tradition at the same time that almost none of his audience will have heard of or thought about. So he's staking a claim to be British and to be part of this place he is and belonging. And at the same time, he's almost sort of Jane is faced in two directions at once. He's completely subverting that by also enacting this culture of, of resistance and remembering the heritage of his other people. So Amazing. he's performing two identities at once. And I really want to know which of those things is most important to him, what he's really doing there. But for me, like no one else, this shows how someone can use songs as a force to um, take agency within their own lives, to really fashion an identity through song and to to use the words of others to really um, put your own voice out there. Such an amazing story and, and, and also fascinating that probably no one in his audience would have been aware of this whole other aspect, element to his hat and yeah, his There's, there's a one-off play in, I think, 1801 called Obi or Three-Fingered Jack that has a brief run where there is a character of John Canoe who has a big um, giant head on his head. But it, it, it's quite a small run. It's not very well known. So I think in 1815... And one thing he does, he, he performs in East London. He also hitches a lift on carts and goes to Staines, Romford and St Albans, who is sort of a day's journey away <laughs> um, in market towns. And he plays there as well. And they've certainly never heard any of this no. before. Um, well, that is it's now the perfect moment to ask the final question, because I know what the answer is. Um, if you could pick something up from one of these um, places that we've visited today and take it back with you to the present and keep it, uh, what would it be? Well, Violet, it's no surprise that I am going to pick a hat. But I am damned if I'm going to take Joseph Johnson's hat. This is his livelihood. I mean, there's quite enough cultural appropriation going on in the history <laughs> of black music without doing anything about that. He needs to keep that till his dying day. So I am going to go back to Torbay and whip the hat off Napoleon's head. Because I heard one of those sold at Sotheby's for a few hundred thousand pounds the other week. <laughs> and um, this is not cynical. Uh, the great historian Stuart Semmel has written fascinatingly on this. Um, in the summer of 1815 as well, um, 
Napoleon's carriage and a lot of his effects uh, are on permanent, well, they're on exhibition in London, and then they tour the country. Uh, this happens to the skeleton of his horse, Marengo, as well, in due course. Uh, people for decades go to the battlefield of Waterloo and uh, take anything they can find as tourist objects, um, whether the, the, the helmets or, or swords of unburied soldiers literally lying on the ground. We've all heard about Waterloo teeth. Uh, down the road here at this very festival, there's the Project Waterloo Uncovered, trying to work out what really happened to the corpses of the soldiers at Waterloo. But the famous um, tree that Wellington stood by throughout the thunderstorm on the mound between La Haison and, and Chateau Hougamont, on that ridge in front of Mont Saint-Jean, that tree, within 10 or 15 years, is completely broken up because everyone's getting a little sacred relic of that tree and taking it back to England or somewhere as their little memento, so there's nothing left. I admit that I do have a rusty nail uh, back home from <laughs> the Chateau of Hougamont. For all I know, it was put in that chateau in 1950, but I think it's from 1815. So um, it's very historically accurate to be stealing Napoleon's things and selling them, so that's what I'm going to do I too. think that's a fantastic choice. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation today. And now I want to throw it open to the floor and um, see if anyone has any questions for Oscar. I think we have a microphone somewhere. A roving mic would be great. We have one in the front <coughs> row in the middle. I'm going to say this a man in a hat. That doesn't get us very far. But <laughs> <laughs> this will be very expensive, I'll tell you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, your your book is there a CD that accompanies it with uh, with the song? That mm. is a beautiful question. Good so question. So <laughs> so vagabonds um, is is very much a book about about people's lives and not about song as such. So there are two or three songs in it, but it's not about them. However, um, if you're interested in my academic books, Napoleon and British Song, or the London Ballad Singer, the Ballad Singer in Georgian and Victorian London, for each of those, I and in some instances my sister, and in some instances my wife, who's sat at the back of, of this field, um, have recorded songs. So for each of those, if you Google them, you will find a lot of recordings. The, for the first book, they're on SoundCloud. For the second one, Cambridge University Press are, are hosting them. So in total, that's 100, uh, 124 ballads that we have recorded that you can go away and listen to for free and download for free online. I suggest you do that. And the songs that people sing in, in the book Vagabonds, where that appears, they're also in there. So Yes, you can hear them. Thank you. What is the debt, in your view, that we owe Victorian writers? You mentioned Dickens, but um, I dare say you might just as well have mentioned Thomas Hardy, for example. What is the debt that we owe Victorian writers in the preservation of song and ballad in English history? Well, that's a, that's a lovely question. Um, a few Dickensian scholars, having heard that I work on song, have been... They said there's this one song of Dickens's called A White Bait Supper or White Bait Dinner. Do you know it? Do you know it? No, no one's ever found it. They've lost it. So um, the people interested in, in the great writers are very bad at keeping hold of their, their songs. Um, while they're recorded and part of the great Victorian novel, the people preserving these songs in the archives, in the forms we have them, are antiquarians who are less often writing fiction and more often writing what we now call non-fiction. Uh, so uh, Mayhew interviews a few, a few singers, but more it's people like Charles Manby Smith um, keeps a lot of these, these London songs. There are collectors um, from Samuel Pepys onwards. People are collecting these. Pepys is a great 17th century collector of, of street ballads. Uh, really, they're, they're people who appoint themselves as the historians of the day, I would say this, rather than the, the novelists of the day who are the ones who've actually 
preserved the songs. Um, though I will shout out to Dickens's song, The Ivy Green, which is set by Henry Russell to a lovely tune and is almost instantly parodied on the street as The Cabbage Green, which you can also hear me singing and is, and is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's a very good question, though. Thank you. My question's about the term vagabond. Ah, yes. Would the people that you've written about have labelled themselves that way? Uh, gosh, no. It's a sensationalising term of the worst possible sort that we put on the book to sell copies. Um, the original title was going to be When London Cried, which I quite liked as sort of the double meaning of, of people crying in the street. And also, I mean, Violet, you say you cried when reading it. I but did. sort of the, the, the tragedy Chapter of the... one about babies. Exactly. The tragedy of the time as well. But my publishers <coughs> quite rightly thought that was a bit, bit too much of a downer. So um, <laughs> vag vagabonds is a term that's starting to be used of these people at the time. It has a slight legal purchase along with terms like rogue, sturdy beggar, um, vagrant, of course, is, is a big one. Um, but vagabond, I think, is also a word with a, a romanticized history, too, which is something I sort of want to challenge and lean into at the same time. But I think the big thing is these people would not see any of these terms as applicable to themselves. Some of them are very conscious that they might be seen as beggars. John James Beezer is one and wants to be clear this isn't the case. Um, Edward Albert, um, who, who comes up, who is reduced to being a crossing sweeper, he thinks of himself therefore as a beggar. He's actually a self-published author and a very good pastry chef and was a ship's cook. He has all of these professional identities and he's really sad that he now feels in, he's in a position of begging. But most people on the street, they see themselves as working because that's what they're doing. They're, they don't see themselves as, as vagabonds as such. So it's a word I use slightly ironically, I suppose, but thank you very much for asking that because it gets right to the heart of this question of who's naming these people. Can I just quickly interject and ask one extra question, which is on the front there's this image and this boy is a costermonger. What, what is a costermonger? What's he selling? I, it's hard to see from his... Yeah, so if you want to find out more about this image, actually, if you go back and listen to um, an episode of Radio 3's Free Thinking from the other week, we talked quite a bit about that okay, particular image. You. But a costermonger is a fairly generic term for someone who um, sells food right. in the street. He, and the boy in this image is selling buns, but... Um, He's kind of dressed up for the, for the photograph as well. This is an early studio photograph, so we take it with a pinch of salt. But, and people think costermongers are very radical and politicised, and often they are. And I mentioned Henry Mayhew, um, whose uh, London Labour and the London Poor is sort of the great tome of sociology about these people. Uh, costermongers get together and say, this person is giving us a terrible reputation. He's interviewing the worst of our sort, and he's rewriting their tales. We very strongly condemn Henry Mayhew's books um, as costermongers. Yeah. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Oscar Jensen at the Chalk Valley History Festival the other day. His new book, Vagabonds, Life on the Streets of 19th Century London, is on sale now and it really is a fascinating read. If you have the chance next summer, try and get down to the Chalk Valley History Festival. It is a celebration of all things historical. Amazing talks, live demonstrations and reenactments, vintage engines and marvellous machines lovely food, piles of books and a helter-skelter, all in the idyllic setting of the Chalk Valley. For more information, visit cvhf.org. And as always, if you would like to find out more about this episode or any of our other ones, please go to tttpodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>